You're listening to Kevin Stock Radio. All right, so this is an episode that I've been meaning to make for a long time, and I've gotten a lot of questions about, uh, and I'm going to talk about sleep. Uh, So it's a little different than what I've been talking about lately, but no less important, probably the most important thing that I could talk about. And so there's so much I want to say about sleep. I jotted down some notes. I'm going to try and make this as thorough as possible. Everything you need to know to really start getting your best sleep by the end of this podcast. Uh, So I do want to spend one minute going over the importance of sleep. Uh, And because you're listening to this, you probably already know. So that's why I want to focus more on action items on how to get the best sleep of your life. Uh, Towards the end of this, I'm going to talk about the three, basically the three things uh, that it takes to get your best sleep. All right. And like I said, I have notes. So if I'm stuttering or going slow, I just I want to make sure I'm thorough and I don't miss anything. So I got some notes down here. Anyways, let's dive on in. And you probably know I talk a lot about nutrition and exercise, but and this sounds like heresy, but I think sleep is as important, if not more important than nutrition and exercise. Like to put this in perspective, if someone asked me, okay, Kevin, if you had to eat the standard American diet, which you know I despise, <laughs> uh, but you got good sleep or have bad sleep and a perfect diet, which would you choose? Uh, I would probably choose the sleep and the standard American diet. And not that that would be an easy decision, but that's just how important sleep is. And I just realized I was talking into the wrong side of the microphone. So... Hopefully you heard that, but hopefully the audio is better now. Okay, I'm not going to start over because I got too much to get through. Anyways, sleep, super important. Uh, if you're if you're not getting enough sleep, this is, it's, it's correlated with all kinds of th- things like uh, disease, aging, fat gain, like the, Im- the mental impact on mood, irritability, emotionality, depression. It's even correlated with uh, suicide, ability to handle stress. Like if you want motivation, willpower, happiness, you have to be getting good sleep. Uh, inadequate sleep associated with accidents, violence. It's so important for uh, uh, memory, learning, ability uh, to think, to be productive, to communicate. It's got. It's just so imperative for optimal hormonal health, strength, stamina, endurance, sex life, and on and on and on. Okay, so. When we sleep, there is a lot that's going on, especially a lot that's going on in the brain. Like our our brain is flushing harmful neurotoxins. We're consolidating memories. We're reinforcing learning. You know, we're repairing our body, fighting infection, uh, fighting against disease. We're replenishing our hormones and neurotransmitters. Basically, we're putting our bodies in a physiological state to be able to thrive at our best the next day. Okay. Uh, of course, I you know dreaming is a massive topic unto itself. Uh, I believe it's super important, probably to a degree that we don't understand. Uh, but psych- uh, psychologists believe that it's d- during dreams where we're working through our cognitive and emotional struggles. Uh, and so, if you're not dreaming, that's just added 
an, an added thing that's not getting taken care of while you sleep. Okay. So let's just rewind real fast uh, and go back to pre-industrial age. Okay. So 1600s before the 1700s. Okay. Industrial revolution. Uh, we know humans slept in two blocks generally during before the industrial revolution and each block was four to five hours long sometimes you know a one to two hour break of wakefulness in between that but essentially you know that's eight to ten hours of sleep time that's 10 to 12 hours of in bed time even uh so we were sleeping a lot more but this changed with the industrial revolution the invention of the light bulb uh time became money uh and we started treating our bodies much differently. Uh, we were started trying to maximize productivity, just like we were trying to maximize productivity with machines. Okay. Now our cells have these embedded clocks and then we're going to talk about the circadian rhythm a little bit more here in a second. Uh, but no matter what we try and push, uh, the body to the limit to limit sleep basically to get as much as we can. Uh, but we can't, we can't get rid of that. Uh, and, you know, I've liked to take a big evolutionary picture when it comes to nutrition to see, you know, what are we designed to eat? But if we zoom out and and look at the human species from uh, an evolutionary perspective, just think about how vulnerable a sleeping human is out in the wild, okay? Uh, and if we could get by with less sleep, that would be a massive evolutionary advantage uh, but natural selection never selected for that. And I think there's a, a reason for this. So it's just an interesting perspective to have uh, throughout the millions of years of human evolution. Sleep, although not ideal from you know being a standpoint of being able to protect ourselves or using that time to eat and gather food, uh, those are that would be a massive advantage. But sleep, nonetheless, uh, has never been selected out. So that disadvantage, although it is a disadvantage is so advantageous that uh, not getting it would, you know, would not be selected for in millions of years of evolution, if that makes sense. Anyways, it's an interesting perspective. All right. So let's just talk about, uh, let's do two more things, three more things before we dive into the meat of how to get your best sleep. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about metabolism because a lot of people, uh, I mean, you're probably listening to this because you want to optimize human performance. Your performance and metabolism has a lot to do with that. Uh, and sleep has a big impact on metabolism uh, through a lot of hormonal pathways, okay? And all these hormones are interrelated. So insulin affects metabolism, testosterone, growth hormone, thyroid, it all intertwines, okay? Your ghrelin and your leptin levels, which have a big impact on fat storage and hunger uh, and fuel usage, all intertwined. Okay, uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine affect metabolic rate, and sleep really is going to optimize your ability to control uh, and balance this hormonal cascade. Okay, if you don't balance it, if it's you're going to have cortisol, cortisol running wild, uh, which is a byproduct of sleep depri- deprivation. Okay, all right. So that's a that's a brief on metabolism. We'll come back to that. I had some. I had some chopped up notes on metabolism. Uh, And I know I'm talking fast. It's just there's a lot I want to get through. I want to touch on epigenetics because this is something I find super interesting. Uh, Epigenetics, and the way I like to think about it is 
okay, your DNA in your cells is, is like a dictionary of words, okay? It has all the words in it. Uh, but epigenetics is what words get strung together and read and form meaning, meaning, okay? So your DNA has all these words, but it's me, but what it's the words that actually get expressed. You, you've probably heard of gene expression, uh, that really matters. Okay. And sleep has a massive impact on epigenetics on what gets expressed. Uh, there's some research that shows that, you know, even with just one night of short sleep, like two hours less than you need, it's going to alter nearly a thousand epigenetic markers. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to even try and wrap wrap your head around the impact that it can have, but it's basically your sleep is telling your cells the rules that they can play by, okay? So that's epigenetics in a nutshell. An example would be uh, changing expression on sensitivity to insulin, uh, blood flow, chemicals in the brain, hunger signals, what you feel like eating, mood, stress, concentration, performance, all these things have, the, have roots in epigenetics. All right, so let's talk about circadian rhythms because this is, I want to say, like the starting block. Like if you're going to do a a 100-meter dash and you want to get off to the best start, well, jumping off that starting block is crucial. Understanding and optimizing and listening to your circadian rhythm is just like that for sleep, okay? And circadian rhythm is basically the natural way the body wants to prepare to go to sleep. And then it wakes itself up during light, okay? And light plays a big role in that, but there's other things. So your eyes and the light that comes in has a big impact on setting that circadian rhythm. Other things like body temperature, activity level, if you're stimulated a whole bunch, it's basically telling your brain that, okay, it's not time to wind down yet, it's not time to go to sleep. Uh, So the brain responds to these inputs and based on the inputs, changes chemicals, chemical changes, get the body ready for sleep or get the body ready to wake up, okay? So you're probably familiar with the big player in this called melatonin. Uh, And so something melatonin does is Melatonin decreases adrenal hormone secretions. So adrenaline, nor, uh, uh, which, so let me back up. So these adrenal hormone secretions secrete things like adrenaline, which keeps you awake, alert, you know, ba- basically ready to tackle the day. Well, melatonin is going to decrease those. Okay. Uh, so let's just talk a little bit more about circadian rhythm uh, and how what you can kind of do to start optimizing this because naturally as the sun would go down, our body temperature lower, it cues the brain to go to sleep. Okay. But if we're staying warm, if we're staying active, we're staying stimulated past sundown, uh, we have excess stress hormones. Uh, those adrenal hormone secretions that we need to decrease before the body can fall into its natural sleeping rhythm. Okay. So, we can we interrupt our circadian rhythm all kinds of ways uh and i want to talk about the four pillars of health because they're all intertwined but maybe i'll get to that in just a second so just to touch on them uh four pillars of health sleep nutrition exercise and the fourth one i'll just call your mental state so for example 
if you have nutritional deficiencies, they can interfere with sleep. Uh, for example, melatonin requires L-tryptophan, you know, vitamin D3, magnesium. It requires basically ingredients to make melatonin. Well, if you're deficient in vitamin D3 or if you're deficient in magnesium, uh, you don't have the raw materials to produce adequate melatonin, that's going to interrupt your sleep. Okay, That's going to interrupt your ability to, to get into a natural circadian rhythm. Okay, Exercise, lots of research shows how exercise improves sleep. Uh, but you got to be too you got to be careful that it's not too much exercise too close to bedtime okay that can interrupt uh, disrupt sleep just as we talked about because uh, naturally the body as the sun goes down like i was saying the body temperature lowers these cues for the brain to start uh, changing the chemical pathways to go to sleep uh, if you're exercising too close to bedtime it disturbs these the, this this chemical release all right stress mental stress can do the same thing all right, so that's basically all I want to talk about as far as the introduction to sleep, what it is, some important things about it. And now I just want to get into the, really the meat and potatoes or just the meat. Uh, <laughs> it's an inside joke maybe. Anyways, uh, let's talk about how to get your best sleep. And I kind of segment this into three areas, okay? Uh, the first area that I was is I was just talking about is optimizing the other three pillars of health uh, because these are very much intertwined nutrition exercise and your mental state so the more that these other pillars are optimized it's going to help your sleep okay so nutrition I'm just going to briefly talk about this because I talk about this a lot on my blog and other podcast issues uh, if you want to read more go to kevinstock.io or listen to some previous podcast episodes uh, but basically, you need good nutrition. Uh, it's gonna those uh, avoiding nutritional nutritional deficit, de deficiencies uh, will help in in more ways than I can describe here. But just like that melatonin, like for example, we need to be producing adequate melatonin for a good sleep cycle. But if you're deficient in nutrients, you're not gonna be able to produce that, uh, at least in the quantity to optimize your sleep. Okay. So, you know, if you know my nutritional uh, beliefs, I think you should be eating a high nutrition dense diet based around animal based foods. I think you should eliminate, get rid of junk. And if you don't know what junk is, uh, <laughs> well, the junk. Anyways, I wrote a series on the health dangers of a plant based diet. Read that. I'm not saying that just give up all plants necessarily right now for you or everyone. Uh, but that'll give you some insight into that. All right. That's nutrition. Let's talk about exercise. Uh, I have one big tip on exercise and that is find something you enjoy or you can learn to enjoy. Now, personally, I think, uh, stressing your muscles via weight training, whether it's Olympic lifting, strength training, or bodybuilding type exercises, which I tend to prefer. I think that's best. <laughs> Maybe I'm biased, but that said, if you hate weight training, you hate going to the gym, but you love basketball, well then play basketball. Or if you just love walking outdoors and you can do that every day, do that, but do something every day. Okay. And the whole thing is if you can enjoy it, then you'll do it. And doing so something is way better than doing nothing. So that's kind of my philosophy on exercise just do something uh that's so we've got nutrition we've got exercise mental state uh 
this is gonna be different for everyone. But anyways, some people call it mindfulness, meditation, stress reduction techniques, whether you're reading, whatever it takes to wind down. Uh, like for me, I gotta make sure I get everything on paper or on or in a list before I go to bed so that I'm not thinking about that at night, okay? So there's a, a million different ways to try and manage uh, this mental state. And all and these three other pillars, nutrition, exercise, mental state, these are massive disciplines onto themselves. But doing a little bit towards optimizing these is gonna help your sleep. So I just, uh, this, would, this would've felt very incomplete if I didn't at least talk about those. All right, so here's, here's the second thing. So we're, do, we're doing the three steps of getting your best sleep. The first step is optimizing the other three pillars. All right, the next step is sleep hygiene, okay? Now, sleep hygiene is basically anything you can do to ensure you have the best environment for your body and your brain to get the best sleep it can, okay? That's kind of vague, so let's go into action items that you can do to get to optimize your sleep hygiene. All right, so there's a few things, things that I'm sure you've probably heard of. Number one thing is you gotta, you gotta sleep in a dark room, all right? No LEDs in the room. If you have LED, whether it's on, uh, on an alarm clock, a phone, I'll talk more about the phone in a second, uh, a fire alarm, put a piece of duct tape over it uh, because no LED. The, the blue light is really gonna mess with uh, your melatonin, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna repress melatonin basically. And anyways, no good. Block LED, uh, cover windows, blackout curtains are the best, okay? Uh, as far as your phone or your alarm clock, most people are probably using their alarm as their phone these days. Uh, put it in a dresser drawer or in an adjacent room. Uh, you'll hear it. You don't gotta worry about that. If you can't hear it, just turn it up. Like that's that's not an issue. Get that light out of the room okay a good a good way to tell is your room dark enough is if you wave your hand in front of your face when you're going to sleep and you can't see your hand that's good that's what you're looking for all right kind of in the same vein as this you want to remove electronics don't have a tv in your room get put the smartphones the screens the ipads whatever get it away uh the light is bad the destruction is bad the association uh that comes with these distractions is bad. The electromagnetic frequencies uh, could potentially be interfering with your sleep. I don't think we even know the impact that can have. Uh, but if you're sleeping with a phone right next to your brain every night, eight hours a night, day after day, uh, I think there's potentially some some interference, some 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 adverse effects that can happen with that. All right, so remove those electronics. Uh, this next one, which I personally believe to be very, very true, but uh, others as well, is the size of your bed. It needs to be big enough to move around. The absolute minimum is a twin for one adult, which means if you're sleeping two, you need a king size bed, okay? So I know there's a lot of people that have queen size beds, and it was an investment, all that stuff, but queen is just not big enough for two full-size adults, okay? So I think I, I think this is super important. I'm not saying go throw your queen mattress away tonight, although I think that would be a good thing and, and upgrading for a king. Uh, but bed size is really important. If, if you have a psychological feeling that you can't move around because you're gonna disturb someone else or you just don't have enough room, uh, 
that's very disruptive, okay? Both to you and the bedtime partner. So minimum of a twin per adult. If you're sleeping solo, uh, I would err on a larger size bed, a full size mattress, okay? Basically, I don't see any reason that the queen size bed should even exist. <laughs> All right, it's big. It's bigger than you need for one. It's not big enough for two. So, either get a full or have a king. That's kind of how I feel about it. All right, that's enough of bed size. Uh, you want the room to be cool. I actually think it should be cold. Like you should be uncomfortable outside the bed. Uh, there's some research that, sh that shows that optimal sleeping temperature is actually in about the 64, 65 degree range up to 68 degrees. Hey, that's pretty That's pretty chilly, all right? Uh, but that's what you want. And believe me, I live uh, in the Midwest here in St. Louis. We have unbelievably miserable hot summers uh, and air conditioning is expensive, uh, but the cost associated with not getting good sleep is far, far, far more expensive. See that air conditioning bill as an investment in your health. That's the way I'd look at it. All right, uh, let's talk about wind down time. All right, this is super important. Uh, you need to have wind down time before you go to sleep. If you are going from work, looking at your computer, tr jumping right into the bed, you're already, you're making it impossible to get optimal sleep, okay? So during this wind down period, which really it should be about two hours, uh, during this time, dim the lights, even better. They got these new glasses out where it'll block out blue light. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great investment and it's easy to do. Uh, wear those glasses around it in the evening. All right, during this wind down time, the house should start cooling to mimic the dropping temperature in your body. Uh, the hot, the noise level in the house should start decreasing. Work should start decreasing. You should be getting off your computers, off your phone. You should start relaxing. Uh, this is a good time to start doing some of that mental, that other pillar, mental health, uh, that mental state work, whether uh, that relaxation comes through meditation or stretching, breathing, yoga, whatever it is. You need to start slowing down during this time. All right, this wind down time, super important. Uh, for the brain to start making those chemical changes that basically say, hey, we're getting ready to go to sleep, all right? Let's talk a little about food. Most people find it best to not eat before bed. Some people eat before bed and don't have a problem. I think it's not optimal, okay? So it's better to eat dinner, give your body time to start digesting that food uh, before you're going to sleep, okay? In that same vein, it is very important not to go to bed starving. That will interrupt your sleep. You're gonna, you know, the the body's gonna wake itself up because it's wanna, it's gonna wanna eat. Uh, so don't go to bed starving. Don't go to bed stuffed. Uh, from a fat loss perspective, I I'll just go ahead and add this in there because a lot of people, you know, the over half the United States is overweight or obese. So. A lot of people should have fat loss as a goal. And one of the things that I think is extraordinarily helpful is to go to bed with the feeling I could eat, but I don't need to eat, okay? That's kind of vague. It's a feeling that you're not starving, you're not stuffed, you could eat, but you don't need to eat. That usually signifies 
an energy balance that maybe be a slight negative, which is what you want for fat loss, but it's not going to be something that's going to be so negative that it's going to disrupt your sleep, which, is, which would have all these other ne- negative metabolic uh, effects, which is going to make fat loss even harder. So anyways, uh, you could shoot for that feeling of I could eat, but I don't need to eat, uh, but I'm not starving. Okay. Uh, food point number two is, uh, you, you, I'm going to tell you something you don't already know, but caffeine limited to the morning, probably best without any caffeine. Uh, but that said, I understand not everyone's going to just give up their morning coffee. Uh, but really if you, if we, if you internalize everything I say here today and you actually put it into practice and you start getting real sleep, uh, you'll quickly realize that you don't need that coffee to wake up. You don't need it to energize you throughout the day. Uh, especially if you're eating a proper diet, so like a good sleep, proper diet, getting your exercise. Uh, there's just, there's no, you don't, you don't need caffeine. You don't need stimulants. You don't need these, these band-aids to try and get you through the day. All right. Next thing is timing. It's super important to try and go to bed at the same time every night. And it's important that that time is before 11 PM. Uh, so this, the, our bodies are bodies of habit and getting in this habit and staying to it really helps solidify that circadian rhythm and it becomes a routine. It becomes a habit and it just, it helps optimize sleep. Uh, and I say before 11, cause there's studies that show if you delay and 11 is, it's, it's a ballpark obvious, but the later you go to sleep, notably after 11 PM, uh, it can cause a rise in cortisol, which is basically a mechanism that's going to help you stay uh, awake and alert. So you're basically, if you stay awake past 11, you're telling the body, I need to stay awake for longer for a certain reason. It's not good. Better to avoid that. All right. I know a lot of people uh, like to read before they go to bed. It's best if that was done in another room and not in bed itself. Okay. There's a lot of distraction reasons for that. Some people say it helps put them to sleep, but really, uh, it, it that's part of a habit. Okay. If you think it helps you go to sleep, it's better to get in the habit of doing that in another room. Really? There's only ideally one thing you should be doing in your bed is sleeping. Uh, you know, it's off, off, you know, sex in your bed is off, off also a pretty common thing that's hard to just move that somewhere else all the time. Uh, but really you should be limiting the activities that's done in the bed. Uh, like watching TV, definitely like one of the worst things you can do. Uh, reading is not as bad as watching TV, but it's, but it's also not optimal. All right. So I'm just I'm giving you optimal here. Um, again, Blue light's going to suppress melatonin, so get rid of the lights. I already talked about that. And keep that smartphone away from your head. All right. This last thing of sleep hygiene is going to catapult us into the third point. All right. So let's just recap. Three steps to getting your best sleep. Optimize the other three pillars. Those other three pillars are nutrition, exercise, and your mental state. That was step one. Step two is your sleep hygiene. We have one more thing to go over here in sleep hygiene, which is going to propel us into the third and final thing. All right. So the last thing in the sleep hygiene is a quiet room. All right. So quiet room means quiet as far as uh, the environment, meaning I, 
I lived in San Francisco for a year and I lived on a busy corner and there's traffic going all night long. That is an example of exactly what you do not want. Okay. You don't want, you don't want loud noises, distractions. Uh, but the most common, uh, the most common noise that's going to disrupt your sleep is snoring. Now snoring is a disaster for you, your bedtime partner. Uh, and it, and it leads us into this third point, this, this third thing, uh, to optimize your sleep. And that is, recognizing and dealing with sleep disordered breathing okay so for a number of years all i did was treat sleep sleep disordered breathing hundreds of patients all i did was treat snoring which is considered one one end of the spectrum of sleep disordered breathing uh all the way through severe obstructive sleep apnea and i think the best way to look at sleep disordered breathing is on this continuum Snoring is on one end of the continuum. Then you have mild obstructive sleep apnea. Then you have moderate obstructive sleep apnea. Then you have severe obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, I'm going to briefly describe what this is because I think it's useful uh, information for you to know so that you can evaluate yourself if you might have it, if you might, what kind of treatment might be uh, uh, beneficial for you. Okay, so when you're snoring, what you are experiencing or when your bedtime partner is snoring what their experience besides you know bothering your sleep with the noise is a restriction of the airway okay and this resistance to airflow creates that noise all right so that's on one snoring is one end of the sleep disordered breathing spectrum okay it's not considered a serious medical disorder uh, but it's kind of on the way so for example mild obstructive sleep apnea is basically that restriction gets a little bit more restricted it gets a little smaller it gets a little harder to breathe all right and so let's talk why this is problematic so when you start getting uh, to the point where you have diagnosed obstructive sleep apnea whether it's mild moderate or severe what's happening is that narrowing of the airway is re it's doing a few things uh, and so let me just talk about hypopnea and apnea. So hypopnea is a narrowing of the airway to such a degree where the oxygen in the blood starts to desaturate. Okay, so your the your the blood going through your body is supposed to be very highly oxygenated all the time, basically. Now, if that if that if the oxygenation of the blood starts to drop, you have a hypopnea. Uh, if that's happening because of restriction of the airway all right now an apnea is a complete closure of the airway so it's basically like suffocation and yeah so a good way to think about obstructive sleep apnea is repeated suffocations throughout the night and people will have an apnea complete closing of that airway it's it's unbelievable to witness it'll be over a minute where they won't be breathing uh which is often accompanied by a gasp gasp for air uh, which people think is just a snore when really they're gasping for air. Okay, so this is a continuum. Snoring is a narrowing of the airway. Mild obstructive sleep apnea is uh, narrowing to a greater extent. They could be 
There can be just hypopneas or complete apneas in mild, moderate, and severe. It's the number per hour that determines the severity, okay? Uh, and during that, the, the saturation, oxygen saturation in the blood is decreasing, which basically means you are suffocating uh, your tissues from the oxygen they need, okay? Especially your brain, okay? Uh, hopefully that makes some sense without going into any more detail. Uh, but the important thing is that this, this sleep-disordered breathing is extraordinarily prevalent and it's extraordinarily disruptive to sleep. Uh, so, you know, as you may know, uh, a bedtime partner that snores is very disruptive to the, to the person trying to sleep, okay? But it's also disruptive, disruptive to them. I want to talk about the impact that snoring and obstructive sleep apnea has on the person who's actually suffering from it. We know the bedtime partner is suffering from the noise, but the person who's actually uh, has restricted breathing is suffering to a greater degree, even though it may not seem like that. <laughs> uh, okay, so what's happening with... Uh, obstructive sleep apnea and perhaps even snoring to agree is the prevention of deep sleep okay so the deeper sleep one would fall into the worse apnea tends to get because the collapse of that airway tends to collapse to a greater degree so the body doesn't want to suffocate so what happens is every time you start to drop into a deeper sleep the body wakes itself up because that airway is collapsing uh, and so basically you have these repeated subconscious levels of awakening all night long. So you never get deep sleep. Uh, as I mentioned, this is generally accompanied with a desaturation of blood oxygen. All right. Uh, so this is tragic to sleep. And like I said, it is, it's, it's perhaps the most serious undiagnosed medical condition in the United States, perhaps the world, uh, because most people suffering from this go undiagnosed. Uh, and I'll get to it in, here in just a minute. Uh, but on average, someone with obstructive sleep apnea suffers with the condition for 10 years before getting a diagnosis. That's 10 years of, you know, suboptimal dangerous sleep uh, where they feel like a zombie. And I'll get to that in a second. Okay, so let's just talk about snoring first. So, if you are snoring or if your bedtime partner is snoring, there's a few things you can do. The first, most, the first easiest, least invasive thing you can do is something called positional therapy, uh, sleeping on your side. And I didn't mention alcohol, but alcohol makes everything worse. It makes your sleep worse. It makes your sleep disordered breathing worse. You're snoring worse. Okay. So if you're drinking alcohol, step one, cut that out. All right. Uh, Step two would be positional therapy, all right? Sleeping on your side. Uh, and there's ways to force this. There's, you, if you look online, if you just Googled positional therapy, you'll see things that, like T-shirts you can wear that have a little hump in the back that will force you onto your side. You can sew a tennis ball into a T-shirt where if you roll onto your side, then it's gonna, <laughs> it's, gonna, it's gonna force you onto your side. If you roll onto your back, it's gonna force you onto your side. Uh, you can try those things, okay? positional therapy it, it, it tends to work it tends to help for people with very mild snoring okay a lot of times people need something more than positional therapy and so i treated patients with custom oral devices called oral appliance therapy that a dentist can make uh that's custom to your mouth your teeth 
uh, to treat both snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. Okay. Now, if you look online, you can probably find some mail order oral device snore guard. Uh, you know, it maybe it's worth a try. I would say that's that's definitely a cheaper option. So uh, maybe try it. My experience, which I understand is a very biased point of view, but all my patients that had tried those absolutely hated them and they didn't work for them. Uh, of course, they were coming to me because they weren't working. So maybe there are those that never came to me at my practice because their mail order oral device was working. Okay, something you can try. But anyways, these oral devices work by technically protruding the mandible, which is to bring that down into understandable terms. Uh, if you've ever learned CPR, you, you'll know that they tell you to lift the chin to open the airway. Well, these oral devices are doing just that. So they're they're moving the, the jaw forward, advancing. They're, sometimes they're called mandibular advancement devices. Uh, where they're advancing the mandible, generally just a small degree, uh, to open up the airway. And just as important as that forward movement of the mandible is probably that they prevent the retraction or the retrusion of the mandible, uh, that when it relaxes, it kind of falls back, shrinks the throat. So they stabilize the jaw in a position that keeps the airway open. Uh, and they work very, very well for snoring and mild apnea. Uh, I've even treated moderate and severe levels of apnea very successfully with oral devices. Uh, they don't, they do, they do come with, uh, potential side effects. I'm not going to go through all those. They can, you know, they can cause, you know, jaw pain, tooth movement, bite changes. Uh, so there's pros and cons. There's pros and cons to everything. Just so you know, there's pros and cons to oral device therapy. Uh, because of some of the cons of oral device therapy, a number of years ago, I started developing a nasal device to help treat uh, snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, so this device, it's called NED, stands for nasal EPAP dilator. Uh, it's basically just two things you put in your nose and it helps improve it, it helps improve airflow both in and out because uh, it works via something called expiratory positive air pressure. Uh, that helps keep the airway from collapsing. I'm going to spare you the science or technology be, 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 uh, behind the nasal device, but it's basically a very cheap, simple, you know, cost-effective, comfortable option to help treat treat snoring. Because oral devices can be quite expensive. Uh, this other uh, this other mechanism of treating snoring that I'm going to mention in a second is super overkill, very uncomfortable for the majority of people that use it, but those that do use it, it does work. But anyways, let's go through, uh, so far snoring. We have positional therapy, basically sleep on your side. We have oral devices, uh, which you can, you can try a mail order one, but if you're really going to go that route, I recommend going to a dentist that has advanced training in, uh, dental sleep medicine. And so that's what it's called, uh, that area of dentistry where they treat, uh, a dentist treats snoring and obstructive sleep apnea, dental sleep medicine. Someone that has advanced training in that will be able to make you a device to treat uh, snoring and mild obstructive sleep apnea. And if you're intolerant to CPAP, which I'm going to get to here in a second, which is continuous positive airway pressure, uh, it could be a good option for even moderate to severe levels of apnea. All right. So what is CPAP? Uh, CPAP is that Darth Vader mask that you may have seen where it connects to a hose and it pumps air 
basically as a pneumatic splinting of the airway. So it basically uses this air pressure to keep the airway from collapsing. Uh, it's basically half, over half the people prescribed a CPAP machine for obstructive sleep apnea uh, are intolerant to it. Uh, but for those that are tolerant to it, it works amazingly well. Uh, so CPAP is another option. Generally, it's not used for snoring. Uh, but for people with very severe snoring, CPAP can be used to, to treat it. It's kind of just kind of like, it's kind of like using a nuclear bomb to kill an ant, so to speak. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk about one other aspect of snoring and that is snoring plus one comorbidity and a comorbidity could be something like diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure. But if you have snoring plus one of these other red flags what you absolutely should do is get a sleep test okay if your physician does not order you one you should request one uh first of all they should be ordering you one but there's a good chance that they're not and there's two types of sleep tests you can do you can do something known as a polysomnograph a psg which is an in-lab sleep test where you go to a lab they hook you up with a lot of wires, you sleep there overnight, and they get all this data about your sleep. That's kind of considered the gold standard, although there are, in my opinion, pros and cons to a PSG because it's such an abnormal environment uh, with all these wires hooked up to you. It's hard to get a standard night's sleep during a PSG, uh, but nonetheless, it's still considered a gold standard sleep test. The other option is we got these fancy home sleep tests thanks to uh, advancements in technology where you can sleep in your own bed, you can hook up your own sleep test all by yourself, and you can get results of your sleep. And basically, these sleep tests are going to tell you a lot of things, but what you're really concerned about is uh, the level of severity of apnea. Do you have obstructive sleep apnea or not? And if you do, are you mild, moderate, or severe? And in addition to that, I would be concerned of like, look at your oxygen levels. Uh, is your oxygen desaturating uh, down into the 80s, 70s? Uh, I've seen people into the 60s, like it's frightening. Like for example, like someone desaturating like that in the hospital, the alarms would be going off. Uh, but that happens every night in people's sleep. Uh, so your oxygen saturation levels, uh, your AHI, which is your apnea, hypopnea index, uh, those are those are the two things you want to be looking for in the sleep test. And if you really want to dive into your sleep test, uh, you know, an AHI and apnea hypopnea index of 5 to 15 is going to put you in the mild range of apnea. 15 to 30 is going to put you in the moderate range of apnea and 30 and above is severe. But the sleep physician would, would should go through that with you. Uh, and then they should give you your treatment options based on uh, your severity. So for example, if you are severe, uh, your first line of treatment is going to be a CPAP. Okay. Uh, but if you're mild, uh, your first line of therapy could be a CPAP or it could be an oral device. Okay. If you just have snoring, they may say, Hey, let's try positional therapy or here's a dentist, go try an oral device or, or a snore guard, uh, or, you know, try out Kevin's nasal device. Cause that's super easy and low cost. Uh, but you, but you got options. All right. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, now, I, I wanted to make sleep disordered breathing its own thing uh, because I have witnessed firsthand how life-changing it is when someone starts getting sleep, okay? So obstructive sleep apnea is very insidious. 
people have it, like I said, on average 10 years before they ever get a diagnosis. Uh, and one of the reasons is tired, their daily fatigue becomes a new normal. They think being that tired is normal and it feels normal to them because that's their daily experience, okay? And then one night of treatment, sometimes it's a week of treatment, but they literally, quite literally, they change overnight once they get a real night's sleep. Like they they don't realize what they've been missing. And like to me, it's tragic like to go 10 years <laughs> with with this insidious sleep disorder uh, and missing out on all that energy, vitality, feeling depressed. Uh, you know, it, it hinders all efforts at fat loss because we talked about metabolism. If you're not getting sleep, you are messing with all these hormones that is going to make it so hard to lose weight. It's going to make you gain weight, which is going to make the apnea worse. It's like a reinforcing terrible spiral. Uh, and I've seen it so many times once a patient, they get their sleep back, they get their energy back weight that they hadn't been able to lose in years. They're able to lose because their hormones are better. They have energy so they can actually exercise efficiently, uh, and effectively. So it's, it's literally life changing. And I don't think enough importance is placed on this because the prevalence is huge. Like the amount of people that snore uh, in the United States alone is staggering. The amount of people that have clinical obstructive sleep apnea, it's estimated to be like 25 million Americans, I believe. It's just astronomical. And the majority of this goes undiagnosed and untreated. Uh, And really, because testing has gotten so much easier and more cost effective that you can do it in your home, I, I don't understand why... Uh, physicians are not ordering this for more of their patients. Okay. But anyways, it could be because they're not informed, but at least now you're informed. Uh, and so you can get a sleep test if you need one. All right. All right. I am running out of breath, but I want to talk about one last thing before we're done here. And that is sleep gadgets. Cause we're talking a little bit about technology and I think there is huge promise in the future for sleep gadgets because I was just I mean I was just talking about how these home sleep tests have brought down the barriers to getting sleep tests okay when everyone had to get a PSG where you had to go sleep in an in lab it was very expensive very uncomfortable no one wanted to do it uh so that I mean that was a big barrier barrier to getting tested to getting diagnosed uh with apnea or just sleep disordered breathing okay those barriers have decreased with home sleep testing I think we can see those barriers decreased even further uh, with technology in the near future with these sleep gadgets, okay? So I've tested out things like Fitbits, uh, which I don't think are accurate, but I think are a step in the right direction. Uh, And I'm gonna be doing more testing of sleep gadgets. Uh, For example, this Aura Ring, it's O-U-R-A. I have not tested it yet, uh, but that is something I've heard great things and I plan on testing it and other technologies uh, in the future. Okay. But something that I used that you can use today that I use with my patients is just a smartphone app, uh, that can record your snoring. Uh, that a lot of times the apps do more than that, but you can record your snoring and you can listen back to it and be like, okay, am I just snoring throughout the night? So let's say you hear consistent snoring throughout the night. Well, that's at least a good sign that air is continuously going into your lungs. All right. But if you hear, silence and then a gasp for air 
and then snoring and then silence and then a gaps for air. That is, I'm not telling you you should be treating your own obstructive sleep apnea or anything like that, but that you can use as a red flag of, okay, I should get a test, all right? Because that gas for air is, hey, your airway is closing down. You're, you're literally suffocating during your sleep, all right? And so labs like uh, iPhone has Snore Lab, which is an excellent app. Uh, I know there's more out there, so if you have Android or whatnot, you could just, just search the, the app store for, for Snore apps. Uh, and I know I said, put your smartphone in the in the you know put it away basically don't have it next to your head uh but for testing purposes for a week or so or whatever it's okay to have that to get an accurate uh evaluation uh i don't i wouldn't want that phone sitting next to your head every single night just to record your snoring but for testing purposes and occasional check-ins i don't see a problem with that all right Woo! we covered a lot uh, I feel like I missed things, but anyways, this is going to be the first of, I'm sure several podcasts as well as I'm going to write a lot more about sleep. There's a lot more I have to say. I wanted to get the big points out there. Uh, so at least you have the information can start taking action. I'll, I'll do better in the future at organizing my thoughts <laughs> in a way, uh, that probably is easier to follow. Cause I know I was probably rambling on in different directions, Uh, But anyways, I want to say thank you for making it to the end. And as a thank you, I want to say uh, if you are a snorer or your bedtime partner is a snorer and you want to test out the NED device, that device that I developed uh, over the last several years, uh, it is only currently at the recording of this. It's only for snoring. I've not got it FDA approved for obstructive sleep apnea, so it's not recommended to use uh, to treat obstructive sleep apnea. In the future, I do hope to create a version of this device uh, that does get FDA approved. I'm hoping for mild apnea. So someone that gets a diagnosis with mild apnea can use a simple cost-effective device to treat that. Uh, But we might be a little ways away from that. So for now, it's just for snoring. But if you want 20% off your first device, they are, they, they, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I'll just say that. Uh, I'll send you a discount code. All you got to do is go to kevinstock.io. That's my website. Uh, put your email address in for, I have a, I have a weekly newsletter. You can sign up for the new, once you sign up for the newsletter, I'll send you uh, the discount code. And if you don't want the weekly newsletter, totally fine. You can just unsubscribe during you know any email. All right, it's at the bottom. Just hit unsubscribe. But anyways, I think you'll like the newsletter. A lot of people say it's the only email they look forward to getting every week. But anyways, grab your discount. I'll send it your way. And thank you for listening. And I will be chatting more about sleep here in the near future and writing about it. If that interests you, uh, it'll all be in that newsletter. That's where I keep everything organized and up to date. Anyways, thanks for listening. Talk with you guys soon. Bye-bye. Keep the radio going. Dr. Kevin Stock has more coming your way. For exclusive content, visit www.kevinstock.io.